0: You live long enough, you will suffer. If you live long enough, you will think to yourself that's not fair. You will ask God, "Why?" Suffering is one of the hardest. It is one of the most perplexing realities of life in this fallen world. The ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus said this, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. That just means wanting to do evil. Is he both able and willing And where does evil come from? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why do we call him God? This afternoon, I want to spend just a few minutes together thinking about suffering. All the hard questions that come with it, and I want us to do so from the ancient prophet Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, wherever you're from in the world. Habakkuk prophesied... In the latter 600s BC, it was a day in which uh, the Assyrian Empire was the world superpower, and the people of Judah were tiny, insignificant, about to go into exile. So, what does this ancient prophet have to teach us about suffering? A lot. A lot. Through his own confusion, through the perplexity of his own suffering, Habakkuk learned what the whole of the scriptures teach us, and even the hardest suffering, God is good. He's worthy of being savored and trusted above everything. So open your Bible, turn in your phone to Habakkuk. I want you to stay in this book because we're going to work through the whole, all three chapters this afternoon together. So I want us to begin by seeing first God-directed questions. That's the first point, God-directed questions. There are fewer circumstances that raise for us all harder questions than in suffering, And Habakkuk begins by asking the question that every suffering Christian asks. Verse 2. Oh Lord, how long? How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Habakkuk prays this because he sees evil. He's wondering why God is seemingly doing nothing. Nothing how long we need to see from the very beginning of this book habakkuk has a right view of god he he directs his prayer to god he laments to god because he understands that the covenant lord of israel is the god who saves he hears the cries of his people he draws near to the brokenhearted and for habakkuk his zeal for the glory of the lord is evidenced by this desire that he has to see God uphold his righteousness and to punish those who are doing wickedness. Surprisingly, God's own people. In Judah, look at verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Even his questions are telling us just how sinful God's people must have been at this point in their history. Notice verse 4. Habakkuk says the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. Wickedness is so great that the law itself means nothing to the people of God. And notice that Habakkuk, he's not taking the side of of, of God's people against God. He's, He's taking the side of God. Against God's people. And what's his question to God? Are you indifferent? Do you care? Well, things haven't changed much, have they? It can seem to us, to the, to the eye of, of reason, that as we watch wickedness and injustice flourish in this world, God is indifferent. He doesn't care. And yet from the beginning, we need to see the injustice that we witness, that we experience, is never greater than the sin, the injustice committed against God as human beings continue in this never-ending quest to try to rob God of His glory and unseat Him from His throne. Notice for Habakkuk, he's very aware of what he sees. Why do you make me see iniquity. Why do you look idly at wrong? What's Habakkuk doing? He's judging the world by what he sees, by what he understands. He, he's making and made the mistake that we so easily make. He believes that his vantage point is the ultimate vantage point. He doesn't realize yet God's vantage point is infinitely higher than his. And what Habakkuk needs what we need is our sight to be reoriented, to be changed. Like Epicurus, Habakkuk reasons wrongly that because these things are happening, God must be okay with it. He must be indifferent. Habakkuk doesn't know yet just how little he sees. You ever looked around the world? You ever wondered, based on what you see, where are you, God? God? Habakkuk doesn't know yet that God is is using his suffering to change the way he sees. God uses suffering in this way to show us how limited our sight is, how much our sight needs to be changed. For now, for Habakkuk, there's a gap. And that's the gap between what you know to be true about God and what you are experiencing in the reality of your life. The gap between your orthodoxy and your experience. You can say, God is love. But then you you find yourself in an experience where your your experience of reality seems at odds with what you know to be truth. And And your efforts to reconcile the two, you you plead with God based on who you know Him to be, but you don't believe you're experiencing with God. Oh Lord, bring justice. Oh Lord, act in my situation. Show me your faithfulness. Suffering is where we wrestle in our faith in the gap. It's in the gap between the great truths that we know about our God and our present experiencing of suffering that God does eternally significant work. With Habakkuk, we're being invited to sit at the feet of a man who laments honestly. He's not going to God in ignorance. He sees God's covenant people flagrantly disobeying God and he says to God, Are you indifferent? Do you care? Four, verse 4, the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes for the perverted. A God-directed question. It's going to receive a God-given answer. We're going to come back to that and to Habakkuk's great relief. God tells Habakkuk definitively he will judge. But to his great shock, God tells him his judgment of his people will come through the Babylonians. That is an answer Habakkuk could not have thought possible or fair. And so that's his second question to God. From chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 1, his first question was, God, are you indifferent? His second one is, God, are you fair? You ever wondered whether God is fair? It was an American novelist that said, if you look up the word fairness in the dictionary, you'll, you'll find that it's not there. Saying there's no such thing as, as fairness. Well, let's read from Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We, you, shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury. And his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? This was probably written when the Babylonians were taking God's people captive. You can feel Habakkuk's anger. He asked God how he remains silent when the man who is wicked, more wicked, swallows up the man who's more righteous than he Now, Habakkuk knew his people were wicked, but they were nothing compared to the Babylonians. Habakkuk says he brings all of them up with a hook. As they took God's people into exile, the Babylonians would humiliate their captives. They would put hooks in their noses to humiliate them as they took them away. You would see cruelty before your very eyes. And yet, as Habakkuk laments, his lament is based on the eternity and in the eternity of God. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting? Oh Lord, my God, my Holy One. Even as we wrestle in this gap of suffering, we must understand who it is we approach. Not like me. Not like you. This is the God who has no beginning. He has no end. End. He is the eternal reality. The finite Habakkuk is wrestling in prayer with the infinite God. And yet, this infinite, eternal God has bound Himself to His people. And His people's future is as sure as God's future. It's certain because God, in the holiness of His character, will remain consistent. Unlike other gods, deceive their people who trick their people this God will never go back on his word we see how Habakkuk understands this boundedness of God when he says oh Lord my God my holy one that is a bold cry from Habakkuk it's blasphemous if it's not true and yet it's true Habakkuk has a claim on the true God the eternal God keeps covenant with his people it's bound up in his unchanging character not in yours our affections and our faith they wobble they go from strong to weak so in the midst of the the deepest and the darkest sufferings your god his unrelenting commitment to you does not change thus is this is the lord it doesn't change oh lord my god my holy one And so Habakkuk, who who knows his God is holy, verse 12, whose eyes are too pure to look on evil, who cannot look at wrong, verse 13, he cannot understand why his God is silent. And whether, verse 17, the wickedness of the Babylonians will ever end. Will they keep on emptying their net or mercilessly killing nations forever? Will this unfair situation go on forever God, such honest questions that those who trust in God ask. It's no different Habakkuk with us. In our suffering, everything in us wants to control God. We want to bend God to our wills. But God will not be bent. He's not in the hurry that you and I are. He's content us to wait you will praise god in eternity for the ways he took you to places you did not want to go to in your suffering to bring about in you what you and i could never bring about in ourselves in suffering god is kindly bending your will away from yourself and toward him and so habakkuk waits Chapter 2, verse 1, I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He's stationed on the tower and once again Habakkuk is looking. He has lamented the iniquity he's had to look at, but now he looks out to see what God will say to him. One teacher observed this. Normally the prophets watch for the people in order to speak to them. Habakkuk watches for God. By faith, he waits. With Habakkuk, we begin with these God-directed questions. So when you suffer, do not be afraid to wrestle with God. To ask Him questions... The Scriptures give us the language we need to complain and to lament to God so that we don't complain about God. In suffering, struggle with God over what you know to be true of Him and the circumstances He's sovereignly given you. But do not be surprised when God's answer is nothing like you expected. That's what I want us to see next, God-given answers. God-given answers. What do you do when the, the silence of heaven breaks in your suffering, but the answer is not one you wanted to hear? For Habakkuk, God makes clear judgment is coming, but it is not in the way that you want, Habakkuk. God's sovereignty is seen in the fact that when he does answer, his answers to us often bring surprise. To Habakkuk, God makes clear, I am not indifferent. But my ways are higher than your ways. And God is clear he will use whoever and whatever to bring about his purposes. Look back at chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. That's not an answer Habakkuk could have fathomed. He could have expected. Far from from being indifferent, God has been actively raising up His very source of judgment that He will bring on them. What does God say? First, He he says to this prophet who asks God, why does he idly look at wrong God tells him to look among the nations to this prophet who asked God, why do you make me see iniquity? God tells him to see, to wonder, to be astounded. What's the surprise? God, the covenant Lord of Israel is moving all of history, world nations and empires for his purposes among his people. God is doing a work among the nations that they won't believe. And he hasn't asked Habakkuk for his counsel about any of it. F.F. Bruce wrote, The idea that the God of Israel was the supreme disposers of the destinies of nations and rulers would have been too absurd to have even been contemplated. And yet it was true. It's true now. How was the God of Israel at work then among the nations to bring about judgment? on his own people God was raising up that bitter and hasty nation the Chaldeans the Babylonians to bring judgment on his people that Habakkuk had pleaded with God to do here is a God answering but not in the way that Habakkuk wanted this was a wicked nation who deserved to have God's judgment on them now being the agent of God to bring judgment on his own people Nabakuk is forced to accept this very hard truth. We, we get a sense of their wickedness there in verse 7. Their justice and dignity go forth, not from God, but from themselves. Verse 10, at kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. Verse 11, they are guilty men whose might, own might, is their God. Have you ever felt surprised by God's answer to you? When you suffer, the sickness is not going to be healed. That relationship is not going to work out. Your circumstance will not change. If so, you're joining in the long line of the saints of God who have gone before you. God's answer to Habakkuk must remind us that what we see is not the extent of what God is doing in the world. Habakkuk's perspective, our perspective, is not the ultimate perspective. I mean, even at this point in Habakkuk, can you see the logic of the cross emerging? While not blameworthy for their actions, God is raising up, he's using the wicked to bring about his judgment for his ultimate purposes. It's God's purposes, not the wicked's, that's prevailing in this world. Do you see how God-centered all of this is? Even when we meet the hardest answers in this life, we must be confident that nothing, nothing, not even the most unfair sufferings will stop our God from accomplishing good. At the cross... The Savior suffered at an unfathomable depth, and yet it was there that God worked to accomplish the most good. If God could accomplish good through the injustice and the suffering at the cross, He can accomplish good in your suffering and in your circumstances. Trust God. Trust His character. When you can't make sense of what you see, we're to play our part faithfully, confident. God has swept us up in Christ. And the work he's doing in the world and that ultimately god will win and yet i want you to see another dimension of the the glory of god in this answer to Habakkuk in a world fascinated with power and governments here we see the god who is using them all as tools in his hands to accomplish his ends remarkably this great babylonian empire was just a tool in god's hands To accomplish His purposes in the lives of His people. There is not now, there was not then, any nation under whose authority God's people suffer that is not being used for God's ultimate purposes. The rise and the fall of nations is in the hands of our God. And He accomplishes His purposes for us through them. I think often in this nation we feel marginalized. We feel small. Inconsequential, insignificant. But we are to be assured that this is our God and He still uses the great powers of the world to accomplish His purposes for His people. We see that most vividly on display, don't we? In the cross, where the world believed that in its wisdom it had triumphed. Against our God, it was yet again confounded by the power of God who used the world's wickedness and their judgment and crucifixion of Jesus to bring about our great triune God's salvation. Friends, the cross and the resurrection must be in your view when you suffer. It must be how you discern what is true about the world. This world does not have the final say. Our God does. He's the disposer of destiny. God raises up and brings down nations for his purposes. And yet for Habakkuk, what does this mean? That in his own lifetime, all he's going to see of the great plan of God is judgment on his nation by a people he thinks should be judged. And so Habakkuk goes on in the rest of chapter 1 to ask God, are you fair? And then beginning there in chapter 2, verse 2, God answers by putting fairness in perspective, God makes clear in verse 2 and 3 that Habakkuk must write the vision down. Verse, verse 3, the vision waits its appointed time. If it seems slow, wait for it. Friends, God's purposes are worth waiting for. Notice verse 3, it will surely come. It will not delay. When you suffer and you wait on God, that is not foolish. We we lose sight of what Habakkuk lost sight of. God's ways are not like our ways. The true goodness of His ways often take time. They can spill over beyond our own lifetimes to show themselves. His ways must be ultimately understood in light of the cross when God once again seemed silent in the face of the wicked, bringing judgment on the only one who wasn't just comparatively more righteous, but who actually was truly righteous. God is free to use history, to use our lives for anything, even to prepare for bigger events that are coming. And what else does God say? Verse 4, speaking of the Babylonians, behold, his soul is puffed up. It's, It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. What was obvious From Habakkuk's vantage point is now confirmed the the wicked Babylonians are just that. Puffed up. Soul not upright. God knows. God sees. And yet there is an alternative path. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Repeated three times in the New Testament. And it teaches us that your justification, your right standing with God from first to last is all of faith here's God's word of comfort to Habakkuk that the way of strength the way of human pride will lead to destruction but the way of the righteous is by faith God is pleased not with human greatness but human weakness faith that trust Him for who He is and what he will, that He'll do what He says He will do not great works faith in our great triune God Your faith brings glory to God because it trusts God for who He is what He says He'll do. Here's Habakkuk struggling to make sense of whether God is fair and Habakkuk learns that not only does God do what is fair, the Babylonians are going to be judged, but also that God gives undeserved and free grace. This is a God-given answer because no one could come up with a God this good. Here is the God who in the midst of the greatest suffering, the the hardest questions, he's really revealing to us depths and dimensions of his glory that we would otherwise never see. Here is the God who discloses himself, not to the strong, but to the weak, who are simply content to trust him. And so for the rest of chapter 2, from verses 6 to 20, God makes clear through a series of woes, he will judge the Babylonians. So this nation being used to bring about God's judgment will be judged. They will be plundered, verse 8. Verse 16, they'll be shamed, destroyed. Verse 17, notice verse 13. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that, people, uh, that people's labor merely for fire? The Babylonians thought their kingdom was great, that it would last forever. God says they labor for fire. It's gonna burn. It's not gonna last. Is God fair? in a way more perfect than we can fathom. Brothers and sisters, do not envy the wicked. Suffering does not always provide easy answers. But God makes clear He will always bring it to His good ends. He will get glory. Look at verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Millions and millions of people are spending their lives laboring for what will amount to fire. But God's plans and purposes for the earth is for the knowledge of His glory to cover the earth. The centrality of God in suffering is seen in the fact that God does not waste the suffering of any of His people. It's all moving toward this great end that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Isn't this what's happening in Habakkuk's life? As he suffers, he's gaining the knowledge of God. And in eternity, he, we will praise God for all that he used to give us a deeper knowledge of himself. God means for us to have this glorious picture in view in the small circumstances of our suffering. Friends, God's goodness, as perplexing as it can seem, always proves itself in the end. His goodness means He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And His goodness means He will not forsake you as His child because He will never forsake His Son with whom you are united. So because of the cross, God's justice means to you as a believer, He's going to give you the inheritance of heaven. God will not be unjust. Pastor Mark Jones said this so well. Justification by faith means... We are as entitled to heaven as Christ is himself. We only lose heaven if God excommunicates his son. And the son isn't going anywhere. This God we are staring at in Habakkuk is good. And Habakkuk is learning he always does good. And yet his goodness comes about in ways we won't naturally expect. We're like Habakkuk. We don't always understand all the wise. Habakkuk didn't. His own lifetime, he he only knows that the Babylonians are going to conquer his people. But he can live by faith because he knows the sure end that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now is that answer enough for you? If you would suffer by faith, it must be. It must be enough for you that in the end, God will get glory, and the knowledge of his name will cover the earth. You will taste the fullness of his goodness ultimately. And he's simply asking Habakkuk, he's simply asking you and me, trust me. That's what we see as this book ends. Habakkuk began with God-directed questions. He was given God, given answers, and the book ends with a God-centered hope. God-centered hope. When we come to chapter 3, Habakkuk's circumstances have not changed. But Habakkuk has. Rather than bending God to his will, God has bent Habakkuk to his. In his confusion and suffering, Habakkuk sees rightly now that God, not man, is at the center this is the prophet who began his lament in chapter 1 asking, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Now he's clear in chapter 3, verse 2. "O oh Lord, I have heard the report of you. And the truth that he's heard has changed him and shaped him. He, he once feared God's indifference, his unfairness. Now he longs for the great works of God. Verse 2. In the midst of the years, revive it in the midst of the years make it known in wrath remember mercy what a wise plea in wrath remember mercy god's wrath is coming in the form of the babylonians he's not pleading with god to stop that at this point he appeals to god based on his work in the past and in the future again god remember mercy in his prayer we're seeing the gospel at the cross, God pours His wrath out, surprisingly, on His own Son as He judges sin. And yet, in His boundless mercy, He justly and He graciously forgives sinners who will trust Him. Truly, the righteous find life by faith. Have you given up on your works and repented and come to God's Son, Jesus, by faith? By faith. Habakkuk's hope is no longer in changing circumstances. His hope is in the unchanging God of the scriptures. Everything about him now is God centered from this prayer for, uh, to, to his desire for God to get glory. When you look down in verse three, he begins to recount the wondrous deeds of God that magnify his glory as he recounts this, this vision that he even possibly experienced. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise, his Brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his head and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Notice verse 10. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their place. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses. Habakkuk looks to what God has done in the past to appeal to God for the future. Oh, Lord, you've done this in the past. Do it again. Act. Act. Habakkuk is is seeing how God-centered God is, and he's pleading with God on this basis. His suffering has forged in him a longing for God to put his glory on display in this spectacular way. So when you suffer, plead with God based on God's delight in being God and manifesting his glory. God's faithfulness in the past, it's grounds for you to plead with him to be faithful in the present and the future. And Habakkuk longs for God to work again for the salvation of his own. Oh, if Habakkuk thought that that his day was a a day of the surprising providence of God, just wait until the cross. It's in the cross where Habakkuk's God would win the salvation of his people. And that of his anointed one, as Jesus Christ, his own son, would crush the, the true head of the house of the wicked, Satan bruised his heel, but Jesus crushed his head. How oh, do you see how Habakkuk's sight has changed? He's looking vertically before he's looking horizontally. He's beholding God before he looks at his circumstances. He's allowing God to be God. And so he interprets his circumstances through the goodness of God rather than interpreting God through what he thinks are the unfairness of his circumstances. And so Habakkuk can say, verse 16... I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. For the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fell and the field yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. He's come full circle. Instead of wondering whether God has heard, Habakkuk declares, I've heard. The God who makes mountains tremble has now made this prophet tremble. Here is a man who has heard, who has seen the glory of God, and he's been brought low. He now sees that God is good. He now sees that this God stands in judgment over his creation, never his creation over him. Habakkuk understands more fully just how limited he is, how unlimited God is. His eyes have been raised beyond his circumstances. It doesn't mean he understands every why of what God is doing, but he's stared at the glory of God. He's in a place where he doesn't have to know why. Because he can trust God. they can trust him. Invasion is coming. His people will be conquered. And yet he's confident in God's word, in God's power, and he's in a place where he can wait, quietly, patiently, rejoicing in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is what God-centered suffering looks like. We see here the supreme goodness and power and worth of God in the midst of a man who lost in his lifetime everything he could have ever wanted in the world. And yet he's content. God, your God, let him be God. He's content to just be in the place where God has assigned him and to be faithful. Why? Because Habakkuk has now seen and understood he has God. And that is more than enough. Habakkuk was not able to change the suffering that he, that his people, would undergo, but God was able to use all of that to change Habakkuk. The judgment that God is going to bring on the Babylonians, it's not coming for many decades. At that point, Habakkuk will have been long dead. Earthly prospects for Habakkuk are not hopeful. Fig trees aren't blossoming. There's no fruit on the vines. There's no produce of the olives. The fields are yielding no food. And yet Habakkuk rejoices. He will take joy in the God of his salvation. Brothers and sisters, your joy is not in your suffering, your joy is in the God of your salvation. He will do good. In our suffering, God is not ultimately aiming to change our circumstances. His aim is to change us at the core of our being that we might be centered on God. And notice that's exactly where Habakkuk has come after much struggle. Because of that, in the strange economy of God, his wrath is coming. By faith, Habakkuk will be in the safest place in the universe, resting, trusting, rejoicing in the supremacy and the goodness of God. And that is more than enough. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that when we suffer, we struggle. We wonder where you are. So we pray that you would use your word this afternoon to meet anyone here who struggles in these ways. Would you convince them by your spirit of your goodness, of your faithfulness, and your power? And would you use their suffering for great good in their lives that they can't even fathom, even in this, this moment? And we would pray that their suffering would end. Lord, make us a people who suffer by faith and use us as a people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.